Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Today, Connecticut has sued the Trump administration. We built the greatest economy in history, and then the plague came in from China. Create a safety net so that these families don't fall into poverty or further into poverty during the course of this pandemic. This effort that brings us the bill today was the bipartisan attempt to uh, come to some agreement. I have not personally endorsed this proposal. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Some voices in the news, including Connecticut lawmakers, Senator Republican John Kissel, ranking member in the Judiciary Committee, also committee co-chair Senator Gary Winfield, both discussing a criminal justice bill up for debate in a special session this month. You also heard Senator Kamala Harris, a potential contender for vice president. President Donald Trump and Connecticut Attorney General William Tong in that mix talking about the state's involvement in a lawsuit challenging a White House rule that would require international students to take classes in person during the pandemic. That rule has now been rescinded. We're still going to talk about it. There's actually so much to talk about this week. Colin's away, but on the panel today, I want to welcome back Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor. You can follow him on Twitter at Paul J. Bass. Paul, it's so nice to talk with you today. Good morning, Lucy. Great to hear your voice. Also here, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at the university. Kalila, welcome back. Thank you, Lucy. She also has written a great book, Identity Politics in the United States, uh, one that you should read on your summer reading list. And with us as well, Kevin Rennie, Hartford current columnist and former state lawmaker. You can follow him at Daily Runctions. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. I love mentioning Twitter because our listeners can also chime in at WNPR Wheelhouse. Uh, First up, lawmakers have a police accountability bill written in the weeks after the death of black Minneapolis resident George Floyd. He was killed by police. The Connecticut proposal includes a long list of changes. It restricts police use of chokeholds, narrows the situations in which an officer can use deadly force. It also would give local oversight boards new authority to demand testimony and records as they look into complaints against police. It creates a new inspector general to review police use of deadly force and to prosecute excessive use of force cases. There are new requirements for training and police recruitment. Officers' disciplinary records would once again be considered public information. And police who see misconduct by fellow officers would be required to intervene. The Judiciary Committee will hold an online public comment session on the bill Friday. A special session would begin in the House next week. The Senate, the week after, and it'll focus on law enforcement again, uh, pandemic, absentee voting, and cost controls for insulin. So let's uh, talk about the police accountability bill, Kalila. I ran through some of the uh, the main points of that proposal. Do you think that bill meets the needs of the moment today? So I, I really think, Lucy, it depends on who you're asking. I think that if you are talking about the public who issued very strong demands, like doing away with things like qualified immunity, requiring different types of training, making this information more transparent and more accessible to the public, then it doesn't go far enough. 
But if you listen to law enforcement who's saying, look, we have a very difficult job to do. And in most cases, we do our job well, we do it to the best of our ability, given all of these competing interests, then their concern is that they will be held accountable to a standard that may not be practical. But what I know is this, whatever comes out of this bill, whatever the final form of this legislation is, until we address the root causes of these problems that result in excessive force or result in the loss of life, we will always be back to this point of figuring out how can legislation address a problem that is often much larger than the consensus that is needed to pass something will allow for. Mm. Let's talk about, I know that uh, you're based in the New Haven area and Paul Bass, of course, uh, it's been a, a rough week in the city of New Haven. We talk about uh, root causes of what's happening in communities. Uh, Paul, uh, chime in there, uh, respond to what Kalilah was saying and from the community perspective, what people want to see lawmakers accomplish. Well, in terms of what people in New Haven want, that's just the beginning list what they're talking about. And when we look at the rest of the state, we see it so differently. Mm-hmm. The idea that you wouldn't even immediately do those things, but they didn't pass sessions. The only reason they're on the agenda now is because of the biggest mass movement in U.S. history has finally put these issues on the front burner. But I think day by day, the politics is going to shift in terms of what is possible. So last night, we had two murders, four shootings in New Haven. We had been to a point with only one shooting a week. In New Haven, we had our lowest violence rates since Lyndon Johnson was president. And now, as in cities across the country, for a variety of reasons, violence is back up. So when the the movement started uh, after Memorial Day, as um, as cities all over the country were putting these issues on the front burner, Kalila was one of the first to point out, we got to watch what the backlash is going to be. So there was an old playbook that didn't work. President Trump tried making up stories to get people scared of the protesters. And for the first time, that didn't work. But now we're seeing a resurgence of crime. And that is going to change the conversation because the crucial, the only difference in the politics that allowed these issues to come forward in the special session was that people in suburbs in Connecticut who really built the communities and built their lives out of denial about how African-Americans are treated in this country. They built their communities to largely keep people out and have police forces keep them in line, quote-unquote. For seven seconds, they were willing to hear what life was really like and be open to change. I'm going to be watching carefully in the next week or two to see how the national conversation goes as as violence, for again, a whole lot of reasons, has come back fast, not just in New Haven, Chicago, New York, all the major cities, little kids getting shot. I don't know whether that is now going to end the seven seconds of people who have made decisions in their lives to separate themselves from the reality of what people are living like in cities, whether they're going to be open to having a more humane society. Mm. Kevin Reddy, what do you think about that? (laughs) You know, I I think that... um, one of one way one thing that we can see uh, uh, the, the magnitude of the change of the last just in a year mm-hmm. is in the legislature uh, the uh, state police contract that was approved uh, on a party line vote last year contained uh, serious restrictions on um, uh, on p- uh, public access to police records. And uh, at the time when when open government advocates uh, raised that issue, that objection, um, the leadership uh, uh, of the legislature, the democratic leadership of the legislature sort of uh, brushed it off. Well, 
you know, being able to now they're willing to um, to uh, open up some of those records that last year they really didn't care about uh, that they were keeping them secret. Those are those are incremental changes that over over uh, time can make a difference in police conduct and how just as importantly as how the public views the police and um uh, i think a you know public that is aware is uh, is more likely to uh, insist upon reforms and um uh, i i think that that is uh, at the start it's a small part of this this bill but i also think you know more training for the police. Uh, I read some in, in Connecticut. You uh, you have to spend more hours training to get a, uh, a a haircutting license than you do to become a state police trooper. Um, those are those are changes that that can make a difference uh, if they're not whole. You know, they're not the same as defunding the police, but I don't think that's what the, what the public wants. Hmm. Uh, when you talk about defunding police, you know, that has been something that uh, some protesters have called for. But this idea of shifting money away from law enforcement to help uh, communities deal with other issues to provide a safety net. Uh, Kalila, when we think about uh, some of the, the issues, even in the city of New Haven, where uh, communities uh, need support and resources, and it should not be all bottled up but when we're thinking about uh, how to bolster law enforcement. You know, Lucy, I think about, we were talking before the show about being in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we all collectively learned during this pandemic is just how vulnerable we all felt Mm -hmm. of people who had built a business and thought, I'm going to be okay, and suddenly it has to shut down. And so all the conditions that allowed COVID to disproportionately affect particular communities and to see more negative detrimental outcomes are the very same conditions that are contributing to increased rates of violence, tension, and instability in particular communities. So if you have a state where we have seen such a dramatic increase in unemployment, and all of the data shows us that when economic instability is high, domestic violence rises, violence increases because of that despair and because of people who are turning to violence to settle disputes. It means that if you have young people who aren't connected to school or to a resource program and are then more likely or more vulnerable to engage in negative behaviors, that is the perfect storm that breeds what we're seeing now. So it's not enough to point to protests to say, well, you have now turned people against law enforcement and they don't want to cooperate. The reality is that we need more resources, more programs and more funding so that people feel connected, but they also aren't living in fear. They aren't in fear of people who would come into their neighborhoods and commit harm and also in fear that if they call for help for law enforcement, then that's a different set of fear. So what Mm -hmm. people are demanding, what they need, what we need as a state, and certainly what we need here in New Haven is a dual emphasis on individual responsibility as well as institutional accountability. We can pursue both without privileging one over the other. Paul, I was thinking back to the story in the New Haven Independent uh, where Board of Alders President Taisha Walter Myers was uh, uh, quoted talking about this upsurge in violence in your city, pointing to the lack of real economic opportunities in the community and calling for an open conversation, as, as Kalila just mentioned. 
Yeah, and I think um, everyone can agree on that one. I think that's mm-hmm. not a left-right issue. That's about opportunity. I think another issue, though, that does have to be decided is how we view policing. It's really not about defunding police because that phrase doesn't mean don't have cops for the mm-hmm. you know our lifetimes. It's about what jobs are done by which cops. And there's actually a remarkable agreement about that, too. The cops who never liked community policing always said cops aren't social workers. Now the people who want to defund the police are saying cops aren't social workers. There's kind of this agreement that police are asked to do every job we haven't figured out in society, whether it's economic opportunity, drug addiction, um, domestic violence, mediation. They're left with the crummy job at the end that we haven't figured out what to do, and then they don't always handle it great. Um, But I think the fundamental question is how should we do policing? And this idea that community policing had was that, and this again was a left-right consensus when it started in the in the early 90s, late 80s. It came out of the um, out of the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and these left-wing groups. And this is that you get small problems before they get bigger. You address them together as a community. You see arrests as a last resort. Then that was perverted by Giuliani and, and Bloomberg in New York into arrest everybody, including the squeegee guy. But now people are reassessing that. A lot of people in urban communities are saying we don't like to be over-policed if we see too many cops. That causes the problems. But then there are other people like who were working with President Obama, including Tracy Mears in New Haven, who said we have to train cops better, make them more part of a community, and de-emphasize arrest again, but work through like consent decrees they've done with places like East Haven and, and Chicago before Trump shut it down to kind of do this evolution from warriors to guardians. But then there are other people who have really been made persuasive arguments that we should be looking to be addressing the problems you're pointing out without calling in the cops to do it. I think those are the real kind of tough debates that if we, if we can catch our breath that are remarkably unideological, that are based on real experiences on the ground of the last two decades in our cities, that I'm hoping, I'm really hoping we can get to. Paul, tell us more about how community policing is practiced in New Haven and how it's different than in other cities. Well, there, it, it, we did one of the first programs in 1990. We had something called the Beat Down Posse, which was white cops went in a van in different neighborhoods and just beat up black kids on the corner to try to quote, keep them in line. And we had you know over 30-something murders a year. And we just did this dramatic change again. I remember covering at the time, being amazed at how I was talking to people and seeing in the room from the Heritage Foundation, from the Cato Institute, from like African-American civil rights people in the community trying to change. And we did this whole idea of what, what Broken Rintos was originally considered before it was perverted, which was get small problems before the bigger problem was the broken window or in the Hill neighborhood in New Haven, kids are jumping on this uh, old mattress and, and beating up the winos on the corner, turn out the, the do the cops buy them a trampoline and find out what's up with their parents. We worked with Yale child study, child study psychologists to team up with New Haven cops. Anytime a kid witnesses violence to help them break the cycle after they work with other law enforcement agencies. Like we do a great job with the federal government. Um, law enforcement, where you identify the small group of people involved in violence, give them an alternative to continuing violence, whether it's housing, job training, drug addiction help. But then also when you're focused on the small group that's doing it, tell them these larger sentences do loom. And we, we really brought down violence a lot. We had fits and starts that came back at times. We had a, a, you know, it spurred back up in 2011. You got to constantly reinvent it as times change. But we've broken up the big gangs. Um, we went down to like single-digit murders a year, though murders is not the big 
statistic. It's shootings is the big statistic. We were down to one a week of a shooting, even though there are bigger problems we don't control, like the way illegal guns are spread. And these things go in cycles, so you can overreact to small-term blips. But we now in New Haven are having the worst violence we've had, at least since 2011. You know, we had four shootings last night that were separate. Two people killed. We're already in double digits and murders. And Again, a lot's going on. Kalila, I think, is a lot better hand on than I do what she's talking about, what's going on. But um, city, community policing is at a crossroads because now the groups that have braced it on the, on the left and in the community now are questioning it. Although I believe that most people in the black community I know in New Haven do want real community policing, but they don't want cops brutalizing them, which they don't mostly do, but there are enough instances where people are concerned about it. And I also think finally what happened in New Haven is the cops were not demonized as part of it. And I'm a little concerned about the cops being demonized in all this. When they structure, there's some cops do terrible stuff, but it's really the structure of what we rely on police to do when we're not dealing with those other problems in society that then we dump on them for doing the job nobody else wants to do. And what really made community policing in New work in New Haven was all these people who were in blue uniforms and every other kind of uniform in New Haven, down to the Yale Child Study Psychologist, to the person in the community management team in Dixville and New Hallville, were in the same room and liked each other and realized how much they had in common and how they wanted to deal with root problems together and not jam people up by locking them up forever. We're now at this interesting crossroads, Lucy, mm. where it could really go either way. We've been so inspired for a few weeks where people are... are for across all backgrounds came together looking for a more just way of policing. There's always that backlash looming that's going to be stoked by a desperate president trying to divide us. And, you know, I'm praying for where we're going to get out of this thing. Hmm. Kalila, that's an interesting point that Paul brings up about how we are at this uh, very important crossroads. What are you seeing and observing in New Haven, especially this point about how police uh, are being demonized? You know, I I approach this from a very personal perspective. I come from a family of law enforcement, you know, dear friends who are, but I've also had the experience as someone who's lost a family member to violence. And so what I know and what I see and what I commit to is that in this moment of heightened passion, not just from community members who are demanding justice and accountability, but also from members of law enforcement who are feeling attacked and are then are lashing out against people in a way that's not productive, is that this is a moment that demands a nuance and a context that too often people are either unwilling to address or simply want to dismiss. And so what I think is so important here in terms of how we reconcile this, you know, I've been hearing from people th this trope called black on black violence. And it suggests that you can't demand that the people whose salaries and pensions and, and settlements you pay for respect your community and act in a just way until you address the sort of community-based violence that we see in other mm -hmm. places. And what is so important there is thinking about accountability, but also dismissing this narrative that somehow people are okay with the violence that is happening in their communities. You know, Paul and I are based in New Haven. We saw the public outcry when a 19-year-old girl was killed while sleeping in an apartment. We witnessed hundreds of people coming together, led by her family, to march and say no more, mm -hmm. to please come forward so that that family can 
began the process of healing. Closure never comes when you lose a loved one to violence. But that process of healing cannot begin until someone is held accountable. There are numerous organizations, you know, Mothers and Others Against Justice. Um, there's the Connecticut VIP that's trying to intervene before we get to a point where police officers are even needed to come to a crime scene. And so what I'd like to see across New Haven, across our state, and certainly across our nation, is people willing to say that is a wrong characterization. No one is okay with what's happening. No one is accepting that. But what do we need to do to lift up those voices, to amplify those efforts that are getting in there and doing the very difficult work and being willing to risk their lives to help young people see themselves in a more positive light and see their communities as being full of potential and not just as a problem. That's an all hands on deck approach that I think more people need to get behind instead of dismissing it as an us versus them, law enforcement versus community. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, the question now is as as we talk about this police accountability bill before the legislature is what will be accomplished. The community has spoken, uh, not just here in Connecticut, but around the nation. Now we have our lawmakers thinking about ways uh, to answer uh, what the community wants to see in terms of police. And so when we think about this special session coming up, the fact that well, will this be a more bipartisan effort? I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that, um, you know, with the police, we face a we play, we face this this these odd contradictions. So um, Republicans are are generally skeptical of union power uh, for public employees. Democrats are generally uh, supportive of union power for public employees. It changes a little with the dynamic of the police, and so there may be an opportunity to find much more common ground than you would expect on making these changes. Connecticut, does, we don't have much, uh, we, don't, we really don't have much of a tradition of local police uh, review boards. And um, uh, those can be very important in engaging the community and also letting, the, letting facts become public. So I, I, think that, um, I think that there is some common ground here. You know, uh, one of the small things that can sometimes make a difference is if the police stop spending uh, a lot of time making stops for uh, minor equipment malfunctions mm -hmm. on motor vehicles. Uh, bad things can start to happen on a on a stop for a belligerent stop for uh, for a, a signal light that doesn't work, and um, those kind of of changes uh, in, in police procedures uh, can can really uh, can bring uh, more comedy to uh, the relationship between the public and the police. And uh, I think I really think this is an opportunity. I mean, uh, the legislature is uh, the bill that is uh, going to be before it, uh, I think is going to start in the House, the House is going to pass it probably and then uh, the House will adjourn. And that will mean the Senate can either pass it or not pass it. it. It won't be able to make any changes in it. So I do think this will be cooked uh, before the legislature's legislative session begins. And uh, there will be little leeway uh, for, uh, for adjustments to it once they start to meet. 
I just I think this this is going to be their one shot for this year, and uh, they may spend time uh, between now and when they reconvene a new legislature convenes in January. But um, this will be it, and um, I, I wouldn't say it's it's uh, it's major reforms, but I think it's a start, and it at least uh, makes the legislature feel like it's doing something, having been uh, adjourned in mid March, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it will be it, it will be a short session, and uh, everything will be decided in advance. There will be no spontaneity. Before we head to break, I didn't want to stress again, there's an online public hearing, I believe, this Friday. What do you expect to, to hear at that public hearing? Do you think it'll be contentious, Kevin? Well, I, I, saw, uh, I saw something that a uh, uh, state police union uh, member uh, sent, to, uh, sent to his colleagues uh, yesterday. There was an emergency meeting of the state police union, and... Um, uh, they are feeling uh, quite embattled by these uh, uh, by the by these uh, proposals, and I I think that um, they may find that it's far more difficult to organize and make their presence felt in an online setting than if they all went to the Capitol and um, uh, hundreds of them were in the halls of the Capitol, and I think that uh, they may find the mood has shifted also. But I, I do think for this for state police who have jealously guarded their prerogatives uh, that uh, that they're going to uh, be surprised at how ineffective their lobbying is uh, this year. Mm. You're hearing Kevin Rennie, Hartford current columnist and former state lawmaker here on The Wheelhouse. Also with us, Paul Bass, New Haven independent editor and Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor and senior director for Inclusive Excellence. Coming up after the break, the presidential election is less than four months away. Who will be Joe Biden's running mate? We talk about some contenders. You can join us, too, at WMPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us today, Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University Political Science Professor, and Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker. You can join us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. Now, presumed Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is expected to announce his pick for a vice presidential running mate by early next month among the people on the list, California U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. Also some others, Senator Elizabeth Warren, maybe Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and Florida Representative and former police chief Val Demings. We can't forget former National Security Advisor Susan Rice. Uh, Kalila, a lot of people think it's going to be Kamala Harris. Do you think it's going to be Kamala Harris? You know, I don't know, Lucy, <laughs> and I think it's OK to say that. And, yep. and let me say why. I think given the uprisings that we've seen across the United States, I get I think that given this sort of increased sense of um, distrust between law enforcement and the communities that they serve, it's going to make the path for Senator Kamala Harris, but also for Val Demings mm -hmm. more difficult because some people will use their past in law enforcement, their past as a prosecutor as a source of critique. 
And others will see it as a credential to say, we may be more comfortable with them as a VP because at least we un they know and understand the challenges that law enforcement and people involved with the criminal justice system face in doing their job. And so what I also know is that the outcome of this election in November will depend on being able to mobilize voters of color, particularly African-American women, who we know vote in larger numbers and at a higher rate than any other group in this country. So whatever it takes to motivate people based on policy, not just purely do they check a box of belonging to a particular group, mm -hmm. that is what's going to make the difference and why knowing today on July 15th who that VP may be is still up in the air. Hmm. Uh, Paul Bass, I know you've been obviously going door to door talking with uh, voters. Uh, I'm just curious what you're hearing from people. Okay, I think what I'm hearing people is that if they cook up some French toast and put that on the ballot for president or vice president, they're all going to vote to get rid of Trump. People just want Trump out. Hmm. Vice president can cause you harm. I think except for Kalila's excellent point that you need to spur the greater turnout of the minority community. That's Otherwise, vice president is not usually as important. It's more important now because the president, whoever's going to be in either party, is so old. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be a pundit despite being on the show, so I have no idea who's going to pick. I think the two principles you got to keep in mind is, one, you can't consider Elizabeth Warren, even though I'm a big fan of hers. You can't give up the Senate seat in Massachusetts and have a Republican governor appoint a successor and have any hope of Democrats winning the House and being able to pass any legislation or confirm any nominees. And I've been really interested in watching Tammy Duckworth, because in addition to Kalila's part, point, I think the route to the White House for Biden lies partly in veteran votes in swing states. Veterans, many of whom obviously are people of color disproportionately, when you look at Trump's record on whether it's deploying the army against people here or his, uh, his, his foundation cheating veterans out of money that was raised for veterans, or looking the other way when Russia is putting a bounty on killing soldiers. I, I don't understand why from now until the election you're not seeing every ad by Democrats and their PACs going to veterans in swing states about whether this commander-in-chief has their back. And Tammy Duckworth, in her audition for the, um, for the role of vice president in her New York Times op-ed, when she said these titanium legs don't buckle, and, and calling out, you know, Tucker Carlson and President Trump as fake patriots. I think that, you know, it's hard to predict what the issues are going to be in three weeks, let alone in three months. But I, I think that you, she might be under serious consideration. Hmm. That's interesting, uh, Kevin, when we think about uh, Republican voters in this country, not everyone happy with uh, President Trump. Do you think there's any vice presidential contenders that Joe Biden could pick that would uh, make any difference for a Republican voter in the general election? Probably not a lot. Uh, I think, though, if there are, uh, Val Demings is a, is, a, is a very good choice because they may be in Florida. Uh, especially older voters who are now living through a pandemic that was supposed to disappear in April or, uh, or we could treat with Lysol in our veins. And um, I, I think that in a place like Florida, that people are now becoming aware of, of how uh, inept Trump has been. And um, those older voters tend to be more Republican. And so I think that uh, Val Demings, uh, offers an opportunity to, uh, uh, to capture Florida's electoral votes. 
And I don't see how Donald Trump could win if he loses Florida. And really, the great motivator here is how do we defeat Donald Trump and return the nation, or at least the presidency, to some form of normalcy. Mm. And um, I think she may help do that. Um, uh, Tammy Duckworth is from Illinois, which is going to, um, you know, which is which is going to go for uh, uh, Joe Biden. If she could, if she could help with uh, with veterans, they're all over, and they she could be very helpful in the upper Midwest and in North Carolina and in Florida and Texas. And uh, it, it may require the uh, Trump campaign to have to fight a lot harder in uh, some states than they expected. You mentioned Florida, uh, Kalila. I can't help but think about the surging cases in that state and the fact that I think the count now is 135,000 Americans mm-hmm. dead in this pandemic. I mean, that is something that's going to be uh, really hard for uh, President Trump uh, to uh, overcome in this election. The sheer magnitude of the number of Americans, not just who have lost their lives to this pandemic, but the number of families who have been touched by this, the number of businesses that have been touched by this, 40% of minority-owned businesses may never reopen. And then compound that with this election that's coming in November, all of the uncertainty about what we're going to do to educate children in our country. And in a place like Florida, which is densely populated, but also has these large communities that are essential to determining the outcome of an election. Whether you are talking about um, Black and Latino communities, you're talking about older communities that tend to vote in higher numbers. All of these factors will have a deep impact come November. And so for the governor of Florida to be able to stand before the people of his state and in some ways stand before the people of our nation to say, I handled this not based on science, but based on partisanship, because there is no other excuse for that. It would seem that this is a moment when Americans could say, yes, parties matter to us. Yes, ideology matters to us. But what matters more is the safety and sanctity of the life of the people that I care about. And so what that will look like in a state like Florida that has been decimated by this crisis and will continue to be, because I don't see any substantive policy changes to keep people safe in that state. And what that would also mean, given the new policy changes in Florida that now have re-enfranchised people who were formerly incarcerated. Florida is a state to watch for a number of reasons this year. Mm. Uh, before we move on from uh, talking about contenders, running mates uh, for Joe Biden, uh, Kevin Rennie, I forgot to talk about uh, Chris Dodd's role in this. Uh, not a surprise because of how close uh, those two uh, have been? Not a surprise, but a, a um, certainly a worrisome sign um, that um, that. Uh, Chris, that uh, Joe Biden is uh, doesn't understand uh, what the problems were, the signs were that eventually led to these crazy four years with Donald Trump, and that is, you know, uh, Chris Dodd is, is is a prime example of of how people became disoriented with um, uh, with uh, with the establishment, with their federal government. Um, got a sweetheart deal as a co-chairman of the banking committee in the U.S. Senate from a, from a large uh, 
mortgage lender uh, got a uh, got a last minute uh, uh, pardon for uh, his friend and benefactor uh, Ed Down from New York uh, as President Clinton was walking out the door on his last day in office. Those are, you know, over the long run, those are things that that um, separated uh, the, the 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 public from its government and. Um, uh, this is a this is a sign that uh, that 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 the established uh, order has not recognized uh, some of the changes that it needs to make in, in how decisions are made. Mm. We're talking just a little bit about how the pandemic and how voters will uh, look at uh, President uh, President Trump's term in office. Uh, just late yesterday, Paul, uh, we're now hearing Trump backing away from this plan to require students from other countries to attend at least some of their classes in person in a pandemic. Otherwise, they wouldn't be international students wouldn't be allowed to be in this country. I mean, what did you make of, of this policy coming out and how quickly the administration backed off? Yeah, I think he throws. I think the strategy with Trump and Stephen Miller is to throw as much outrageous stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And if you get half of it, you've done what people thought you couldn't have done at all. So I don't think they're going to stop trying to keep use the pandemic as a reason to keep people out of the country. I think he gets a lot of heat in general from business bankers who worry about um, the impact there. But I just thought yesterday was a case when they say, "Okay, this one won't fly. We'll go the next one." Looks like we, I don't know if Paul is still there. Your your phone dropped out, Paul. Uh, I did want to bring up that Second District Congressman Joe Courtney also made the point that international students studying in the U.S. contribute $41 billion to the economy. Uh, locking them out um, from studying here is like pretty much the last thing our economy needs, uh, Kalila. Uh, I wanted to talk with you because you are at a university. You know, what this would have meant uh, to international students uh, at Quinnipiac and other places. You know, I think what we are seeing is this attack on the other, however people try to define that. Mm -hmm. And so we know that international students add to our universities, they add to our communities, and they add to their country. The idea that we can help cultivate talent and keep that talent in our country becomes particularly advantageous to companies who are saying, how can we recruit? How can we remain competitive in a global market unless we have students, future employees who are committed to that? But Lucy, what I also know on my campus, as many other campuses, is that this would not have just affected international students. It also sends a signal about international faculty and their families. And so if we're thinking about what it will take to make our country stronger, what it will take to make our country competitive, then we don't do that by singling out people and treating them in a derogatory way, especially when people say, I respect this country so much that I'm willing to navigate all of this in order to be a part of the need for education. So this is not just an attack on international students. In many ways, it is also the furthering of anti-intellectualism that says this is somehow a bad thing. And what I would also caution is that although the administration has said it will not pursue this right now, I think that colleges, universities, cities and towns need to prepare for the next attack that will come on the role of international students and international uh, people as a part of our community. You're hearing Dr. Kalila. Oh, go ahead. I just, I, I just would like to add to that that 
one of the the perhaps even the greatest benefit of of, of students from other nations coming to the United States, live here for several years, are educated uh, in the areas that interest them and that they excel in, and then return to the, the, the their home nations, is that they often become tremendous ambassadors for, uh, for liberty, uh, for uh, reforms in their own government, and uh, they, they re a lot of them are on the, on the front lines of freedom. And, um, and that, is a, uh, that is a great benefit, not only to the nations that they, that they are in, but it's a great benefit for us that living here in a nation that is free um, changes them in, uh, in many ways that we cannot measure uh, uh, by uh, dollars. It is just, uh, it, it, it helps to make the world a better place. You're listening to The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. That's Kevin Rennie, Hartford current columnist and former state lawmaker. Dr. Clella Brown-Dean is here, Quinnipiac University political science professor, and Paul Bass, New Haven independent editor. After the break, the Christopher Columbus debate rages on. You can join us, too. Find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today we're talking with a great panel, Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor, and Kevin Rennie, Hartford current columnist and former state lawmaker. Uh, we wanted to spend some time talking about protests that have happened recently in our state, specifically focused around statues of Christopher Columbus, some demonstrations even in support of the Italian explorer. A Columbus statue was beheaded in Waterbury. Hartford and Middletown, among other places, have removed their Columbus statues. Dozens of people took part in a virtual town hall meeting in Southington this week about their town monument. I wanted to start with you, Paul, because uh, your staff covered what happened in Worcester Square in New Haven. Uh, this issue is more, is it more complicated than just uh, Italian-American residents and, and people in our state who support Columbus? And then you hear from black and brown, brown residents that look at what Columbus started and say that this is someone that should not be um, valorized at this time. I do think it's more complicated. Um, in New Haven, the statue is in Worcester Square. It's historically the Italian-American neighborhood of the city. You know, at one point, Lucy, I think you know that we had more people from the Amalfi region of, it, of Italy living here mm -hmm. than living in Amalfi. Um, and it's still the cultural identity of the neighborhood, though the composition has changed. So many people moved to suburbs or the East Shore neighborhoods in New Haven that it's not a predominantly Italian-American neighborhood at all. And in fact, there was a petition drive by a a Caucasian teenage uh, student, high school student, said, let's get rid of the statue. And then it was embraced by leaders of the traditional Italian-American societies in Worcester Square, including the St. Andrew's Society. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not talking about Obama voters. And everybody kind of came around, let's have it done. So it was swiftly done before it could be a big fight. And then there are people who have left the neighborhood but still, still felt strongly about it who were older, who came to try to do civil disobedience to stop it at the last minute, and then they um, attacked um, so a couple of people of color who were disagreeing with them about colonialism and all that. And, and so that's what that turned into actual fight, and that was captured on video and it was very just, uh, divisive. But in general, what struck me 
is that we have moved to a place in the country where we're reexamining how we look at heroes and statues, and that for most people in the Italian-American community who are still a part of New Haven, they knew that Christopher Columbus wasn't the great Italian-American, and people who wanted the statue down, for the most part, love the idea of paying tribute, whether it's to Italian-American factory workers who built so much of the city, or individuals, great you know, Italian-Americans of our community who, who did good things rather than slave people, and them, and and uh, so I, I do think that kind of got lost in the tumult. There are some really great questions I think Kalila, having written the book on identity politics, will have a lot more to say about than I will, about how do we recognize people and how do we give groups their due. New Haven's about to do a long overdue statue. William Lansom, King Lansom, an African-American who built up a big part of the city in the 1800s. But I also think there are great questions about whether we should be making recognition of people. And the last thing I'll just say about nuances when New Haven renamed, when Yale renamed Calhoun College, they had a committee saying, "When do we rename stuff?" When we don't. That is actually a great report. They actually thought about where do we draw the line, and they talked about the context and the reason for why the statues went in the first place. So they talked about when Calhoun College was named after leading abolitionist at Yale, it was not because he gave money to the university or they considered him a great guy. It's because at the time they were trying to convince white Southerners in the early 1900s to feel more comfortable at Yale, even though they were pro-Confederate. Similarly, University of Texas, after Brown versus Board, put up Confederate um, statues. So that's why they took those down. So there actually is a way out of this where we actually are more thoughtful about the question of do we honor individuals or not, and do we look at the context? Like the Collins Conference would be a great example of why that one would come down, but that doesn't mean everything comes down. Kalala, mm. we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, give me your take on, on what this debate is, is really about when we think about identity politics today. So the debate isn't really about a statue. It is about what community and what culture a statue represents for people who are fighting so hard to keep those statues up. And I talk about in my book, you know, the debate over Bree Newsom taking down the Confederate flag in South Carolina at the same time that Mitch Landrew was having a debate in Louisiana about Confederate statues and monuments. And often, Lucy, people think identity politics is what other people do, groups who aren't like us. Mm -hmm. But this was about a diverse Italian community feeling like their history and their story was being erased and attacked and wanting to defend that more so than just defending the Columbus statue. So I agree with Paul. This is a conversation that needs to be had across the country, but it also is a recognition of just how much communities are diverse within those communities and how much of their identity as groups in this country are tied to that, to their history of being relegated to the, the margins and what happens when you feel like that is being attacked or challenged. This isn't the end of the discussion. Mm -hmm. It needs to be a proactive discussion because this will come up again with some other marker or monument. That's very true. Uh, we're going to start a lightning round now of our feats of strength and airing of grievances. Uh, Kevin Rowning, quickly, what's your feat of strength or airing of grievance? Well, my feat of strength is a recommendation. Uh, during the pandemic, I, list, I watched uh, um, uh, a French village, and um, it is, uh, it is a, a, a several seasons French uh, television program that is available on uh, uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, about the Nazi occupation of um, a French village. It is in French, but uh, it is absorbing. You won't even, you will hardly notice the subtitles. And um, it is a reminder of 
the blessings of freedom and uh, and also the terrible things that uh, that uh, the loss of freedom uh, and the imposition of of uh, coercion uh, does to people. Paul Bass, thirty seconds. Dan Barvier, so that someone could devote your life to one great mission and make their community better. Thirty-five years he spent as the ranger of New Haven's East Rock Park, mm-hmm. devoted day and night to connecting people to their environment, to nature from all backgrounds, loving that environment and preserving it and becoming more of a community in the process. He's retired after 35 years of doing one job and doing it great. Mm, that was a great profile in The Independent. Thank you, Paul. Oh, thank you. And Kalila, we get to give you the last word. Eat a strength to all of the young people and all of the educators who are reminding us that normal did not work for a lot of people. And now is the time to get things right. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you, Dr. Clyla Brown-Dean, political science professor and senior director for inclusive excellence at Quinnipiac University. Always a pleasure to have you on. Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor, thank you. And Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current Colonist and former state lawmaker here on The Wheelhouse. Uh, Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week.